The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 10. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief. To repay it by your hand, the helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. Okay, we are in Judges 8, verses 1 through 12. Uh, this sermon will only be an introduction for next week. You'll get the typology, okay? So as we're going through it today, think on what is being said, why is it being said, and then uh, maybe next week we'll come to a conclusion about it. But we're in 8, and it's verses 1 through 12. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian or Ebenzeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Sukkot, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Sukkot said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him and as the men of Sukkot had answered. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba and Jogbeha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Good stuff. Okay, this sermon was typed on 18 December of 2023. The reason for the battle that took place in Judges 6 was to take the burden off Israel after their time of oppression under Midian. Does everybody remember what Midian pictures? 
judgment, the place of judgment, the tribulation period specifically. Leading up to the battle, the children of Israel had done evil in the eyes of Jehovah. Look at Israel today. Look at their conduct before the Lord. Therefore, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Tribulation period, time ahead. The people of Israel were, therefore, hidden in caves and strongholds. That's Judges 6-2. Because Midian would come against Israel and plunder them, leaving nothing in their wake, which is Judges 6, 3-5. The reason for all of their affliction was the evil they were doing in the eyes of the Lord. As was seen, this is a prophetic type of what is to come upon Israel during the tribulation period. It was only when their power was totally shattered that they finally cried out to the Lord, which is Judges 6, verse 6. That is coming in their future. Read the prophets. It's all clear. The Lord sent a messenger to rebuke and remind them of their past, which they had completely forgotten. Instead, they ignored the voice of the Lord, which is Judges 6, 7 through 10. And finally, Gideon was selected as the judge, and the process of delivering Israel began. Our text verse comes from Isaiah 10. It is verses 25 and 26. Uh, you know, Doug always does a sermon photo. You know that uh, Doug in Ireland, he does a photo for the sermon itself. He also, about six months ago, started doing a text verse photo. So I always put that in when I read the text verse. But it, some of the things he has painted in the past few weeks have been fantastic. You really need to go online and look at his work. It's just been beautiful. Anyway, um, our text verse, Isaiah 10, for yet a very little while and the indignation will cease as will my anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. As his rod was on the sea, so will he lift it up in the manner of Egypt. As today's verses indicate, the arrogance of Ephraim is seen. The point of the Lord choosing Gideon was because it was the Lord who was to obtain the glory for the victory in the battle, not Israel. That was explicitly stated by the Lord in Judges 7, verse 2. To select Ephraim to gain the victory over the foes, the greater of the two tribes would stand as the head of the battle. Ephraim is the one with the greater blessing. They're the greater tribe, even though he's the second born. Even if it was only 300 men led by someone from Ephraim, it would have been more notable for them than 300 from Manasseh. In other words, this is the least tribe, and so it's more notable, much less the weakest clan of Manasseh, as he claimed in Judges 6.15, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh. Therefore, the Lord gaining the glory would be at least in part diminished. When we read the Bible, we must look at everything that is going on and continually ask ourselves, why have things been orchestrated as they are? What is the Lord doing and why is he doing it in a particular way? In contemplating such things, we can more clearly understand how jealously he protects his glory. The Lord, having done what he did through Jesus, only makes sense if Jesus is Jehovah incarnate. The Lord himself, through the work of Jesus Christ, is what is being highlighted in Scripture again and again and again. Our participation, whether as a part of Israel or a part of the church, is for us to see the work of the Lord, to rejoice in it, and to glorify him for it. Let the glory of the Lord always be considered as you walk before him in this life you have been given. Before I go on, I read you in our sermon text today how many people have died already in the battle. How many was it? 120,000. 300 men without any sword in their hand and 120,000 are dead. The Lord gets the glory. This marvelous truth is to be considered as we read his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three separate thoughts for you today. The first is the vintage of Abiezer. It's verses one through three. The words of chapter seven ended with these words. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. 
They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Remembering that, chapter 8 begins with seemingly contradictory words. Verse 1, Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us? Vayomeru elav ish Ephraim ma hadavar haze asita lanu. And said unto him, Man, Ephraim, what the word, thee this, done to us? From the outset, there is an obvious sense of anger in the words. Ephraim is bent out of shape at their treatment at the hand of Gideon. The specific reason is next stated by them. Verse 1 continuing, By not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites. Le bilti korot lanu ki halachta le hilachem be Midian. To accept calling to us when went to fight in Midian. It's said at the end of chapter 7 that Gideon sent messengers throughout Mount Ephraim, I just read that to you, to engage in the battle against Midian. However, this isn't what they're arguing about. Rather, they got the leftovers of the battle, as Midian was already fleeing away. They were called to be a mop-up crew to ensure total defeat of those in retreat. They weren't called to participate in a larger battle where the glory of the victory was gained. Therefore, verse 1 continues, and they reprimanded him sharply. The words are highly emphatic. And quarreled surely with him in vehemence. The attitude of Ephraim has its roots in the past. A good summary of where their arrogance is derived from is given by the pulpit commentary. They say, it is possible that the transfer of the birthright from Manasseh to Ephraim, which was in Genesis 48, may have produced some estrangement between the tribes. It is also possible that Ephraim, in view of their great tribal power and the distinction conferred upon them by the judgeship of Joshua, the son of Nun, which is Numbers 13, and the possession of his grave, which is Joshua 24, may have grown haughty and domineering, and perhaps more disposed to rest upon their former glories than to embark in fresh undertakings. Anyhow, Gideon did not consult them, nor ask their aid in the first instance. Now that the war had been so successful, the men of Ephraim were much displeased at not having been consulted. They're jealous, in other words. Remember that Gideon is from Manasseh. Therefore, the tribe with the greater blessing, Ephraim, is upbraiding the leader who has come from the less favored tribe, Manasseh. Ephraim's position among the tribes, their size, their history of being preeminent and blessing in battle and so forth, all came together resulting in a haughty feeling that they deserved more share in the glory of the battle than they had received. But as we saw, the whole purpose is for the Lord to gain the glory, yes. not some tribe. Yes. As for the names, Ephraim means twice fruitful and ashes. Midian means place of judgment. Concerning Ephraim's chiding of Gideon, this same hauteur will cost them greatly in chapter 12. For now, instead of fighting over the matter, Gideon yields to their protestations by acknowledging Ephraim's greatness. Verse 2, so he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? And said, what done now like you? In order to mollify the fit of pique that had welled up in Ephraim, Gideon subordinates himself and thus his tribe to his younger brother by asking a question in a comparative manner. The actual comparison comes in the next words. Verse 2 continues, Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? Halo tov olot Ephraim mibsir Abiezer. Not grape gleanings Ephraim from vintage Abiezer. Here is a new word, oliot. It is insufficiently translated by many as gleaning or gleanings. Rather, it is a particular type of gleaning, that of grapes. Being a noun in the plural construct, it should be rendered grape gleanings. To get the sense of the word, Isaiah 17 provides clarity. Yet gleaning grapes, oliot, will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in its most fruitful branches, <laughs> says the Lord God of Israel. The word is derived from Allah, to effect thoroughly. As such, it can indicate maltreatment of another, 
mocking, and so on. In the case of such gleaning, a person goes through the grapes at harvest time. In order to get the most out of his harvest, he will cut all that he can as he goes through the grapes. The reason for this is stated in the law. Before you look down and read it, what is the reason? Anybody know? Care for the poor. Exactly. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean alal it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. If you don't get it the first go through, you are never to touch it again. By law, there was not to be a second passing through, a gleaning of the grapes. To do so would deprive those who were in need and who relied on these gleanings merely to survive. Gideon is saying that the gleaning of Ephraim, this second passing through, the meager remaining grapes, is greater than the vintage or the first cutting of the grapes of Manasseh. He's subordinating himself and he's saying what a great brother he has to mollify his anxiety, okay? This may be a general statement of Gideon like, you are much greater than us, that what we harvest each year is a pittance compared to what the poorest in your clan are left to eat. If this is his intent, he will explain how in his coming words. However, this is more likely a comparison to the battle itself, as in, we may have initiated the battle, but what we did is incomparable to what you accomplished in the battle. The name Abiezer means father of help. As for what Gideon is conveying, his next words speak of the battle and the great achievement wrought by Ephraim. Verse 3. God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. Be'yedchem natan Elohim et sare Midian et Oreb vazaev. In your hand gave God princes Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. This explains the great accomplishment that outshone the deeds of Gideon, who cannot take credit for having dispersed the Midianite camp in any way, shape, or form. All they did was blow trumpets, pull out lights, and yell, right? Everybody else did the work on themselves. Rather, he simply did as instructed, and the Lord brought about the victory. Gideon is humbly placing the deeds of Ephraim ahead of his effort, subordinating his clan below Ephraim, who received the greater blessing from Jacob. Oreb means raven. Zeb means wolf. Continuing, he says, verse 3, going on, and what was I able to do in comparison with you? Uma, yakol, and what was I able to do like you? In essence, his words say, Gideon led the original charge of the battle against Midian, the first passing through of the vineyard. But you, you captured and beheaded the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, which is the gleaning of the grapes. You then pursued the battle, even as far as Midian itself. What did I do in comparison to you? With that, the hoped-for response is realized. Verse 3 continues, Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Rather, Az rafta rucham me'alav bedabero hadavar hazeh. Then relaxed their spirit from upon him in his speaking the word, the this. The word ruach means wind, spirit, and breath. It means all three of them. They're all united in thought as well. There is the spirit, which expresses the state of the emotion. There is the breath, which is the spirit animated into substance. And there is the wind, which is the motion of the breath as it passes through the nostrils of the men. One can think of someone fuming and the heavy breathing that results. Any of the three words would suffice in the translation, but the spirit is the basis of the other two. Gideon, through his statement, was able to soothe the indignation of Ephraim. The substance of these first three verses is well reflected in the words of Proverbs 15, verse 1. There it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. The whole thought is summed up very well by John Lang. He says, the vain tribe, which only smarted at the thought that an insignificant member of Manasseh should reap greater glory than Ephraim, is quieted when this person himself disclaims the glory. Vanity that prides itself on seeming merits is always contracted. 
The Ephraimites do not understand the modesty of Gideon, which, in denying, as it were, his own real merits, necessarily pours the contempt of irony on their pretended deserts. But Gideon's object is gained. They allow themselves to be pacified and go home to bask themselves in the sunshine of their achievements. Gideon, for his part, teaches that victory alone does not suffice to save a people, but that he is the real hero who is truly humble and for the sake of peace overcomes himself to conquer. He must know how to bend. Who is fearful and unwilling to help when the Lord has already provided the victory? They will cry in anguish from yelp to yelp when Gideon punishes those who are contradictory. Pain and shame lie ahead for those of Sukkot when Gideon teaches them with thorns and flails. No more will they boastfully gloat. Instead, they will be remembered for their epic fails. And for the men of Penuel, for them, bad times lie ahead. A tough lesson is coming and things won't be swell when the men wind up nothing but dead. Our second thought today is seeking succor from Sukkot. It's verses 4 through 9. Verse 4, when Gideon came to the Jordan. The whole verse is one of motion. Vayavo Gidon ha yardena. And came Gideon, the Jordan word. The Jordan means the descender. Gideon means cutter. Gideon is coming toward and arriving at the descender. Verse 4 continues. He and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted but still in pursuit. The action and intensity continue. Over hu ushalosh meot haish asher ito ayafim ve rodfim. Crossing over, he and 300 the man who with him wearied and pursuing. The Latin Vulgate completely botches the thought. Here's what they say. He crossed him with the 300 men who were with him and who fled because of weariness and could not pursue him. It doesn't say at all that they couldn't pursue. Rather, they were completely exhausted, and yet they continued the pursuit. They began their pursuit in the dead of night and just kept going. The word used to describe them, ayef, signifies languid. It thus is to be wearied or faint. It is the same word used to describe Esau when he sold his birthright. Here's what it says in Genesis 25. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary, I-F. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary, I-F. Therefore, his name was called Edom. It is because of their wearied state that the next words are detailed. Verse 5, then he said to the men of Sukkot, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me. The translation is correct, but the Hebrew is much more expressive. It says, Vayomer le'anche Sukkot tenu na kikrot lechem la'am asher beraglai. Literally, and said to men Sukkot, give, pray, circles bread to the people who are in my feet. Gideon is looking to revitalize his men with bread. This is all he asked for, and it would be a common courtesy to oblige, especially for fellow Israelites in their state. Sukkot means tabernacles. Gideon next explains his request. Verse 5 continues, For they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. He emphatically states what is going on. Ki ayafim hem ve'onochi rodef achare zevach ve'tzalmunna, malche midyan. For wearied they and I, I pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, kings Midian. Gideon doesn't go beyond the request for bread, such as enlisting fighting men, asking for intelligence on troop size or direction or any other such thing. He simply notes the men are wearied as they pursue the enemies of Israel. Ziba, very important to get these two names and you might get what's going on in this passage. Ziba is the same as Zebach, a sacrifice. It means sacrifice. The NAS concordance says Zalmunna comes from the same as Tselem, an image. The Na at the end, I wasn't sure because I, I couldn't place it. I emailed Sergio and we talked about it and he says it's quite evident what it is. The Na at the end would refer to Nuwa, to move, waver, tremble, quiver, etc. It gives a sense of motion. Others say it is derived from tsel and mana, shade and to withhold. That's not correct. Stick with the first one. You'll see why. Therefore, the name may mean 
moving image. That is what it means. Or something like denied shade, deprived of shade, shade has been denied. Without any explanation at all, Charles Ellicott says shadow of an exile. As for the word selem, image, it is the word used in Genesis 1 when God created man. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, Beit Salmo. In the image, Beit Salem, of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you have two names, sacrifice and moving image. If you can figure what's being said here, you will get what this passage is about. I'll tell you again, I'll probably say it again in this sermon. I'll definitely say it next week. Everything that's going to happen in the future that is coming upon Israel has two applications. One is a literal world application. They are going to enter into the tribulation period. The second is a spiritual application. They will be brought to God. And everything spiritual is simply being worked out on a physical reality. Okay? Think about it. You might get it. This word is also used as a prophetic type of Christ when Bezalel was selected to build the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for setting and carving wood and to work in all manner of workmanship. Bezalel was selected by the Lord to oversee the construction of the tabernacle that anticipated in every single detail the last Adam, the very image, the Tselem of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, as seen in the modern Hebrew New Testament. So I'm giving you a little Hebrew so you can try to figure this out. As for Gideon, with his simple request stated, a surprising response is provided. Verse 6, and the leaders of Sukkot said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand? Rather, Vayomer Sare Sukkot, Hakaf Zebach Vetzalmunna Ata Beyadecha, and said Princess Sukkot, the palm, Ziba and Zalmunna, now in your hand. First, the verb said is singular. Therefore, either one person speaks for them, or more likely, they all speak with united voice. Next, of the 40-plus translations I referred to, the only two that accurately translated the word as palm were a couple of Catholic Bibles. Though similar in meaning, the hand signifies power and or authority. The palm and soul, because it's the same word, signifies possession and or the state of something. The men of Sukkot are saying that the state of these two kings, because of the authority that they possess, is not in Gideon's hand, meaning under his authority. As such, they question why it is, verse 6, that we should give bread to your army. There may be a dual meaning here that forms a pun. Kineten lachem, for giving to your army bread. Without the vowel points, the word lachem, or bread, is identical in spelling to lachem, war. Therefore, they could be making a play on the thought. Why should we give your army bread so that you can wage war? If Gideon's army is defeated, there will be retribution upon those who aided the warriors. It is, however, inexcusable as an excuse, peevish and cowardly. First, how on earth would a retreating army even know that their pursuers stopped and received bread? And more, these are fellow Israelites. If Gideon doesn't succeed, Sukkot will continue to be oppressed by Midian anyway. It is Israel who cried out to the Lord for relief. He has provided the chance of obtaining it through Gideon, and yet they are unwilling to assist. Therefore, verse 7, so Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, Vayomer Gidon lachen betet Yehovah et Zebach veet Zalmunna beyadi, and said Gideon, therefore, in giving Yehovah, Ziba and Zalmunna in my hand. Gideon asserts with all assurance that the battle is won. Rather than wasting his time and energy with what he intends to do with these princes, he defers their punishment. But it is coming. Verse 7 continues. 
Then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Though nobody translates it this way, this is the most probable meaning. I'll read the Hebrew first. Vedashti et besarchem et kotseha midbar ve'et ha-barkanim. And thresh your flesh with thorns the wilderness and with the flails. Here's a word found only in this passage now and in verse 16, barkanim. It is so obscure that the Greek translation, which came 250 years before the coming of Christ, they punt and they simply say, I tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and the barkanim. They don't even translate it. They just put it down in the Hebrew transliterated into English or into Greek at the time. The word comes from the noun barak, lightning. That then comes from the verb barak, to flash, but in the sense of casting forth. It is not the light of the flash, but the action. Most translations say briars. To justify this, Strong says, perhaps as burning brightly. He's trying to make a mental connection. You've got something that flashes, and so he says burning brightly. In other words, when lit, thorns burn brightly. Everybody see the connection? That's not it. I just told you that it signifies the casting forth, not the light. That makes no sense. The only other suggestion is threshing sledges. To justify that, BDB says furnished with sharp, meaning glittering stones, like they're going to put precious stones on the bottom of the threshing sledge. Neither of these satisfies. However, the Charlie Garrett translation, fortunately, for your understanding, does what the others fail to do. Rather than what is intended, the other options focus on the idea of the light aspect of lightning, not the action. However, the CG translation insightfully uses the casting forth aspect of a flail. It is a rod connected to another rod by loops, so that when the rod is cast forward by the arm, the smaller rod, the flail, picks up immense speed and thwacks down on the grain, threshing it. To confirm this most astute translation, we turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 28, verse 27. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick, and the cumin with a rod. The rod, in this case, would include a flail. In using this implement, the person will increase his productivity without wearing himself out in the process, right? Why would you beat something when you only have to do this instead of this? You're using a lot less energy. For best happy, because my wife is from Japan, for best happy and for more shrewd commentaries on obscure or mistranslated words, be sure to continue attending the superior word. As for the promised pending punishment, it is delayed until the enemy is eliminated. It will make what comes upon these princes all the more poignantly painful. The narrative continues. Verse 8, then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. Vaya'al Misham Penuel, Vedabar Alahem Kazot, and ascended from there Penuel, and spoke unto them according to this. Penuel is translated as face of God, but this must more exactingly be explained. The word comes from Pana, to turn, and El, God. The word Pane, or uh, plural Panim, comes from this and signifies faces. The idea of Penuel is of action. He turns to God, or emphatically, turn to God. It speaks in the sense of a relationship. Verse 8 continues, And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered. And answered him, men Penuel, according to which answered men Sukkot. In other words, they completely rejected his appeal for bread, ignoring any sense of familial relationship with him and opting to stay in the good graces of Midian. Imagine that you're in the tribulation period and you rather endure that than be on God's side. That's what's coming. That is what's coming upon Israel. Therefore, verse 9, so he also spoke to the men of Penuel saying, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. And said also to men Penuel, saying, In returning in peace, breaking down the tower, thee this. It may be that these men were in the tower when Gideon arrived, securing themselves from the fleeing Midianites. When Gideon arrived, he called out to them for bread, but 
they refused, thinking that they were secure in their tower and didn't need Gideon's assistance. Therefore, Gideon promised to return and destroy the object of their confidence. With that, the narrative turns to the objects of Gideon's attention. Another surprise awaits Midian. Another defeat awaits her kings. This is the Lord's power working through Gideon, and for it, Israel's heart sings. Who can doubt that the Lord led the battle, victory despite such overwhelming odds, the shout of war and the swords as they rattle, so much for Midian's false trust in their gods. Through the Lord is victory in life, he is the one who guided every step of Gideon until was ended the time of strife, until was defeated the vast army of Midian. Our third thought today is he took the two kings of Midian. It's verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000. Rather, vezabach vezalmuna be Karkor, u machanehem imam ka hameshet asar elef. And Ziba and Zalmunna in the Karkor, and their camps with them, according to five ten thousand. The name Karkor is variously defined as foundation, pounded down, even ground, and so forth. The word is identical in spelling to karkar, which is found in Numbers 24, verse 17, where it signifies to shatter. As such, some define it as destruction instead of pounded down. There is another interpretation, though. As karkor is not mentioned elsewhere, some suggest that it signifies rest, not a place, but as what happens in the location. This is based on what it says in the next verse. As for the number, it is a multiple of 15 and 10 multiplied. Of 15, Bollinger says the following. Being a multiple of 5 partakes of the significance of that number, also of the number 3 with which it is combined. 3 times 5. 5 is, as we have seen, the number of grace. And 3 is the number of divine perfection. 15, therefore, specifically refers to acts wrought by the energy of divine grace. Deity is seen in it, for the two Hebrew letters which express it are Yod, which is 10, and He, which is 5. These spell the ineffable name of Yah, who is the foundation of all grace. The number 15 is thus made up by addition, 10 plus 5, but as the Jews would not, by the constant use of these two letters, profane the sacred name, two other letters were arbitrarily used for this number, and a different and artificial combination was thus formed, Tet, which is 9, and Vav, which is 6. The number 9 plus 6 would thus represent the number 15, but without any significance. 15 being 8 plus 7, as well as 3 times 5, it may also include a reference to resurrection as being a special mark of the energy of divine grace issuing in glory. I know that was a lot of information, but Bollinger is always spot on with his analyses. 10 signifies the completeness of order, marking the entire round of anything is therefore the ever-present signification of the number 10. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. There, in this location, their camps totaled 15,000. They were, verse 10 continues, all who were left of the army of the people of the East. All the remainings from all camp sons East. As seen several times, the B'nai Kedem, or Sons East, are the various people groups gathered together as one camp. It seems like a sizable army, but when it says the remainings, it brings the matter to its true light. Remember, you had 135,000 people, 120,000 are killed. There's only 15,000. 300 guys can wipe them out, no problem, right? Verse 10 continues, For 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. And the followers, 120,000 man drawing sword. The meaning is that only one-ninth of the army had survived to this point. As for the number, it is derived from 120 multiplied by tens. Bollinger says 120 is made up of three forties applied to time. Therefore, it signifies a divinely appointed period of probation. The odds are still heavily against Gideon, but he has the initiative. 
Therefore, he continues onward against the oppressors of Israel. Verse 11, then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba and Jogbeha. And ascended Gideon, way the dwellers in tents, from east to Noba and Jogbeha. The point is that they circled around to the east of these cities in an area where the tent dwellers lived. As such, it would be totally unexpected that war would come from a place where people were peacefully tending their flocks. It was also the direction in which Midian was fleeing. They're going around, they're doing a flanking maneuver, and they're going to completely surprise them. Noba, or Novach, is seen for the third and last time in Scripture. It means to bark or barking. It was located in the territory of Manasseh. Jogbeha is seen for the second and last time. It means lofty or exalted. It was in the territory of Gad. Because of the surprising direction of Gideon's attack, the camp of Midian was completely unprepared. Verse 11 continues, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. Vayak et ha And struck the camp, and the camp was confidence. The word betach is a noun signifying security or confidence. The men were confident, assuming that they had escaped far enough from near the hill of Moreh, which was the original place of attack. Thus, they stopped and rested to lick their wounds. They could rest and ponder how things have gone so poorly, and yet they would be comfortable enough to set down their swords and prepare for their return home. It is at such a time that Gideon and his men struck the camp. Verse 12, when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them. And fled Ziba and Zalmunna and pursued after them. Because of another engagement with the enemy in such an unexpected manner and place, the kings of Midian simply got up and fled. However, verse 12 finishes with, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. It doesn't say that they killed all of the camp. They may have been routed, but that isn't what is conveyed. It says, Vayukot et shnei malchei Midian, et zebach va'et Zalmunna ve'chal ha'machanei hecherid, and seized two kings Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and all the camp terrified. What it seems to mean is that Gideon struck the camp, then the kings fled. So Gideon and his men simply left the battle to seize them. The rest of the Midianites were so terrified that they didn't even bother to come after Gideon and his army, despite the huge numerical superiority. They had been defeated, their leaders were goners, and they refrained from everything but shaking in their sandals and cowering in their tents. With that, the verses for today are ended. Despite the odds, Gideon knew that with any number, when the Lord is involved, victory is absolutely guaranteed. And more, even without proper provision to sustain him and his men, he was willing to expend himself in pursuit of the enemy. However, the Lord provided for them. They were able to continue and even prevail. This will be true for us if the Lord is behind what we are engaged in. This doesn't mean that we should run off willy-nilly, assuming that what we intend to do will be a success. Gideon had the word of the Lord to assure him of what he was to do. We have the word of the Lord as well. We don't want to ever go beyond what is written, but we can have confidence in what we are doing if it is in accord with his word. That's why it is so, so, so important to read your Bible, know your Bible. Let us trust in this and not falter in our determination to do what is right and what is expected of us. In the end, through life or death, we will be carried through to the promised end set before us in the word. So why worry in the meantime? Until your time arrives, take heed to yourselves and to the doctrine you possess. Continue in them and you will do well. Have the confidence of Gideon that you will prevail. The Lord is with you, so you will. Right? Okay, something simple. All this complicated stuff, and next week, I got to tell you, the explanation is not going to be simple. I read it a day ago, getting ready for next week, and it's very complicated. Pay attention to Ziba and Zalmunna, sacrifice and moving image. When you get that, everything else will fall into place. You'll understand it, okay? 
it's it's a lot of information it's a lot of detail but in the end it is telling us a story exactly as all of these are it's a simple story that god is doing the work and we don't need to trust in ourselves okay what what context is sacrifice under the law of moses it's a work it's something that we need to do when we have sinned against god it's mandated in the law of moses everybody got that keep thinking about that Beyond that, the main thing that we are here for as a church is to know Jesus. The main thing that we are here to do as a church, and I'm not talking about a building. The church is the people in the building or in the open air if you're out on the beach, whatever. The church is to tell people about Jesus. It's to convey the message of Jesus and to learn holiness, righteousness, and to learn what God expects of you. You can't do that unless you personally know Jesus as your Savior. And so I'd like to tell you once again what the gospel is. It's very simple, very simple. Jesus came into this earth to save sinners, okay? He died for our sins, according to scripture, all right? What does that mean? That means that you're a sinner, that you need a savior. We have sin in us. He died for our sins. He was buried. That means he was really dead. And when he died with your sins, that means that your sins went into the grave with him. Got that so far? Jesus Christ rose again the third day according to scripture. Jesus Christ must be God because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That means that he has to be God because if not, then he had sin of his own. He would still be in the grave and he didn't die for your sins. But it also means that your sins are forever forgiven because if they aren't, then Jesus wouldn't have come out of the grave. Not ever. If your sin clung to him, he never would have come out of the grave. And 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 says that now in Christ, we are not imputed sin. We do wrong and we'll be judged for that, but we are not being imputed sin. The imputation of sin is what causes man to be separated from God. If we are in Christ and we are not being imputed sin, then God maintains his relationship with us despite ourselves. But that doesn't give you license to go out and do bad stuff. It means that you are given grace and you should want all the more to do right things okay this is the simple gospel jesus died for your sins jesus was buried jesus rose again if you believe those three things the bible says you will be saved there's nothing else that you need to do except that and then after that there are things you should do please do those things okay our closing verse comes from isaiah 9 it's verse 4 for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. Next week is Judges 8, 13 through 21. You want to have fun? Just listen for a spell. So get in line. It's Gideon, Judge of Israel. Part 9. That'll be our 26th Judges sermon. Thank you, Jay. (laughs) Mary Lee just jumped out of her seat about eight feet. (laughs) The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? All right. Now, I got, I got a question. This is an easy one. It came out of your cards. Uh, so you got to raise your hand and give the answer. And you will get Walnut Creek apple butter, 32 ounces, 908 grams of deliciousness. Okay. Uh, no, totally calorie free. Oh, he's already got his hand up. He wants this apple butter. Okay, here it is. In what city did Zacchaeus see Jesus? Hey, she did. Both the hand and the voice came out. Apple butter for you. Very good. It took a while, but I knew somebody would get that. It's just... uh, In what city did Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus the wee little man... What city did he... Zacchaeus, yeah. Well, we all pronounce it differently. Zacchaeus. Listen, I had a dog named Zacchaeus, and that's his name. Okay. What city did he see Jesus? Jericho. There you go. Okay. Jericho, there you go. Okay, we got a poem, and we'll be done. Oh, wait. Before we... uh, Next week's... This came from somebody online named Bob. He sent me a lot of frankincense. I was talking about incense during the Bible study and um, how much I love this stuff. And 
so he sent me some in the mail, and he sent enough where I can give one out next week, okay? This is real frankincense, and uh, I think it was Bob. Maybe somebody else sent me a video, and uh, this has really good properties. I, in other words, it, it's like good for you in many ways. So the real frankincense comes out of the Bible. If you like burning incense, this is it. If you don't, give it to somebody else, because if you win it, it's yours. Um, I don't take gifts back. You have to find somebody if you don't want it. If you just wanted to show how smart you are, that's fine. But you have to you have to take that out of here. Okay, I got a poem and we'll be done. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this thing to us by not calling us? When you went to fight with the Midianites, and they reprimanded him sharply, putting up a fuss. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? Isn't it true? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. How about that? And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Sukkot, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me. Our hunger is acute, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. This is what I'm doing. And the leaders of Sukkot said, speaking a bit too smarmy, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars, so I have planned. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered that day. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel saying, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. So to you, I am relaying. So Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor and their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road, not taking a sightseeing tour, of those who dwell in the tents on the east of Noba and Jogbeha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, intending them harmy, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this precious word and thankful for those, thank you for those who are so faithful to translate it over the many, many millennia to get it down to us in an understandable form. Thank you for the teachers out there who instruct us through commentaries that are available all over the place if we're just simply willing to look. Thank you, Lord, for the gathering of the saints to hear your word as it comes out and is explained to them and may they be blessed as they hear and receive what is coming out of your word, and may their lives be changed for good according to what your word says. May that be in all of us, Lord. Help us in this and help us to be strong in our faith, uh, firm in our resolve, and ever keeping our eyes on you. Thank you, Lord God. We love you, we praise you, and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen.